Hello, everybody, and welcome. This is Margaret Harris at the WHO headquarters in Geneva, and welcome to our COVID-19 press briefing today, this Friday, July 17. Today, among other things, we want to discuss the impact COVID is having on humanitarian work and all those we strive to help. So along with our usual speaker, our Director General, Dr. Tedros, you will also hear from Mr. Mark Lowcock, the UN Undersecretary General for Humanitarian Affairs and Emergency Relief Coordinator. As usual, we'll be providing simulta simultaneous translation in all six UN languages, plus Portuguese, and you may also listen in Hindi. Note, owing to the way Zoom is set up, you will need to go to the button marked Korean to access Arabic. And now I will hand over to Dr. Tedros. Dr. Tedros, you have the floor. Thank you. Thank you, Margaret. Good morning, uh, good afternoon, and good evening. Yesterday, I had the honor of being in Madrid to join King Felipe VI and Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez of Spain's memorial, for Spain's memorial, for those who have lost their lives to COVID-19 and for the health workers fighting the pandemic. Earlier in the week, I was also honored to be with President Macron in Paris for the Bastille Day celebrations, which were also a celebration of France's heroic health workers. Both countries are good examples of the four essential pillars of the response. Strong and humble leadership, community engagement, suppressing transmission, and saving lives. And both countries are rightly recognizing the incredible contribution of health workers. WHO welcomes the pay rise for French health workers announced on Monday. The pandemic has shown us that there is no health without health workers. I was specially touched in Madrid yesterday by a speech given by a nurse called Aroa Lopez. I want to read you some of what she said. I quote, we have given it our all. We have worked to the brink of exhaustion. And once again, we have understood maybe better than ever, why we chose this profession, to care for people and to save lives. We have been the messengers of the last goodbye to older people who died alone, hearing their children's voices on the telephone. We have made video calls, we have held their hand, and we have had to fight back the tears when someone said, don't let me die alone. Ms. Lopez finished her remarks with this appeal. I want to ask the authorities to defend everyone's health care, to remember that there is no better tribute to those who are no longer with us than to protect our health and ensure the dignity of our professions, end of quote. We all owe health workers an enormous debt, not just because they have cared for the sick, but because they have risked their own lives in the line of duty. So far, about 10% of all cases globally are among health workers. Many health workers are also suffering physical and psychological exhaustion after months of working in extremely stressful environments. To support health workers, WHO has published guidance and training packages on how they can protect themselves. We're also driving research to better understand the extent of infection among health workers and the risk factors for infection. We're also shipping millions of items of protective gear around the world and ensuring health facilities are properly equipped. Although COVID-19 has rightly captured the world's attention, we must also remember it's not the only crisis the world is facing. Many countries 
especially in Africa and the Middle East, are still reeling from years of conflict and other humanitarian crises. COVID-19 threatens to exacerbate many of these crises. The pandemic and the restrictions put in place to suppress it are taking a heavy toll on 220 million people in protracted emergencies. While it's too early to assess the full impact of so-called lockdowns and other containment measures, up to 132 million more people may go hungry in 2020, in addition to the 690 million who went hungry last year. Deep budget cuts to education and rising poverty caused by the pandemic could force at least 9.7 million children out of school forever by the end of this year, with millions more falling behind in learning. The economic impact of the pandemic in humanitarian settings can aggravate already dire living conditions more displacement, food shortages, risk of malnutrition, decrease in access to essential services, mental health problems, and so on. WHO is working through our 150 country offices to support the response to COVID-19, to support the continuity of essential health services, and to engage communities to ensure demand for these services is maintained. It's also vital that as an international community, we use this opportunity not only to respond to the pandemic, but to build health systems that are more resilient and more able to withstand the impact of health emergencies. The pandemic is teaching us that health is not a luxury item. It is the foundation of social, economic, and political stability. Three months ago, WHO launched its updated strategic preparedness and response plan, which estimates the resources needed to support WHO's work on the pandemic. But we all know that the impacts of the pandemic go far beyond health, and so do the needs, especially for the poorest and most vulnerable countries. That's why the UN launched the Global Humanitarian Response Plan for COVID-19 in March. Today, I'm honored to welcome Mark Lowcock, my friend, the United Nations Under Secretary General for Humanitarian Affairs and Emergency Relief Coordinator to present the Global Humanitarian Response Plan update. The Global Humanitarian Response Plan addresses the immediate humanitarian needs caused or exacerbated by COVID-19 in 63 priority countries with existing humanitarian crisis. If we fail to address the wider impacts of the pandemic, we risk an even greater crisis than the one brought about by the virus itself. Mark, thank you for joining us today. Over to you. Well, Tedros, um, thank you. Uh, thank you very much indeed. It's great to see you. Great to see Mike with you also, by the way. I don't think I've seen Mike since the day, day before yesterday. Um, so it's, I'm very pleased to, um, to be with you. And I'm, I'm um, very um, glad also to have this opportunity to um, say thank you to everyone in the professional media who's been covering the um, pandemic. I think that by and large, um, the world has benefited from professional coverage um, of the pandemic, and I'm grateful to responsible journalists um, for their role in that. So as Tedros has said, today we publish the third version of the uh, UN COVID-19 Global Humanitarian Response Plan. For the first plan in March, we sought $2 billion. The May update was costed at $6.7 billion, and funding the plan we're releasing today will cost $10.3 billion. And you can see that in a way as a metaphor for the explosive impact of the virus. So I will run through the key elements of the plan itself, but first, and perhaps even more importantly, I wanna talk a bit about our estimates of the cost of doing nothing 
in these poor and fragile countries because COVID-19 and the associated global recession are about to wreak havoc in fragile and low-income countries. And my message today, especially in the run-up to the G20 finance ministers meeting, to them and to other rich nations, is that unless we act now, we should be prepared for a series of human tragedies more brutal and more destructive than any of the direct impacts of the virus itself. In action, as Tedros and others have been stating very clearly in recent months, will leave the virus free to circle the globe. It will undo decades of development and it will create a generation's worth of tragic and exportable problems. But it doesn't have to be like that. This can be fixed with money and leadership from the world's wealthier nations and some fresh thinking. We estimate that the cost of protecting the poorest 10% of the global population from the worst effects of the pandemic and the global recession is about $90 billion. That's less than 1% of the stimulus package wealthy countries have put in place to protect the global economy. Today's plan is an important part of that solution for $10.3 billion it will help 63 vulnerable countries and cover the global transport system necessary to deliver the relief. So why should wealthier countries fund this? Well, my office working with the University of Oxford has produced the first comprehensive and detailed assessment of the costs of inaction. And I wanna highlight three of its conclusions. First, the human and economic costs of increased poverty and hunger. The pandemic risks inducing the first rise in global poverty since 1990. At least 70 to 100 million people could be pushed back into the extreme poverty category. In addition, an extra 130 million people could be pushed to the brink of starvation by the end of this year, bringing the total to 265 million people, a doubling of people facing starvation. Secondly, there's the economic costs of protracted containment measures on education. A protracted school shutdown of five months could generate learning losses that have a present value of $10 trillion globally. The average student losing out on five months of education could face a reduction of $16,000 in lifetime earnings in present value terms. School closures threaten not only education, but also nutrition, and they make girls more vulnerable. For example, during the 2014 to 16 Ebola epidemic in West Africa, school closures led to an increase in teenage pregnancies of 11 percentage points in Sierra Leonean communities. And thirdly, there's the cost of increased global instability and conflict. An additional 13 countries are projected to experience new conflicts between 2020 and 2022 relative to pre-pandemic forecasts. If that materializes, global instability would reach a new 30-year peak. Conflict is expensive. The minimum cost incurred during an average civil war to both host and neighboring countries has been estimated at approximately $60 billion. Refugee outflows would likely increase. The World Food Programme calculates that for each percentage point increase in acute hunger, refugee outflows increase by two percentage points. So let me come on now to the plan we're releasing today. And let me take the opportunity to thank hundreds, probably thousands of colleagues across humanitarian agencies, across the World Health Organization, the World Food Program, UNICEF, hundreds of NGOs who've contributed to the update of the plan for their work. The main components making up the $10.3 billion are $8.4 billion for country level responses, 1.8 billion for global requirements, including more than a billion dollars for humanitarian air transport, getting aid workers in and out, getting supplies in and out, and for our medical evacuation system for medical workers and aid workers working for international organizations who get sick. There's $300 million in supplemental funding for NGOs, in addition to what we've got for NGOs in the country plans. NGOs, in fact, benefit from something like 30 to 40% of all the resources, directly and indirectly, we have in the plan. But we need an additional allocation for them to account for the fact that many of them face acute funding problems now. And we have to keep these crucial NGOs in business because they play such an important role in the frontline response. 
There's also $500 million for famine prevention. There's a serious risk of multiple famines later this year and early next year, and we need to invest now to prevent that. The plan obviously is only as effective as the funding it receives. So far, we've raised $1.7 billion. I appreciate every country is being hurt by this pandemic, but I do have to say that the response of wealthy nations who have rightly thrown out the fiscal and monetary rule books to protect, to protect their people and their economies, their response has been grossly inadequate when it comes to helping the poorer countries. And that is dangerously short-sighted. The massive problem the world faces can be addressed with relatively little money, with a modicum of imagination, and if we park the old rules, to reflect today's unique circumstances. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much, Mr. Lecoq, and thank you, Dr. Thank Tedros. you, thank you, Mark. Apologies, would you like to go say some more words, Dr. Tedros? No, sorry, my apologies for being too quick. Now we'll, we will move um, on to the question and answer session. As I mentioned, both speakers are now ready, it's mo both speakers you've heard are now ready to answer your questions, but they are also joined by Dr. Mike Ryan and Dr. Maria von Kerkhoff, um, our regular uh, experts. Uh, now remember, you can ask your question in any of the UN languages, as well as Portuguese. Um, please state your name and your agency and who your question is for. However, as I said, we have so much expertise in the room, someone else may answer. Now, the first person I have on my list is Sophie from the South African Broadcasting Commission. Sophie, could you please unmute yourself and go ahead? I have on my list is Sophie from the South African Broadcasting Commission. Sophie, could you please unmute yourself and go ahead? Thank you. My question is directed to the to the WHO director, Dr. Tedros. Dr. Tedros, uh, tomorrow is Nelson Mandela's day. I just want to find out your message to the globe or the world during this time, where we are dealing with the problem of uh, COVID-19. And on the issue of um, the impact of uh, this pandemic. I just want to find out, the speaker just pointed out that uh, the wealthy nations must come on board. Are you getting a sense that there is political commitment to assist poorer nations in a true Madiba spirit? Sophie, that question was a bit garbled, but I think you were asking Dr. Tedros and Mr. Lokok if there is now political commitment to help the nations, that, the less wealthy nations. Is that correct? No. Sophie, we'll get back to you and we'll go to our next question. I think we there's a family. There's a there's a I, I got the first one, uh, I can say, I can start the first one. The second one was to mark, I think, about wealthy nations, um, what they should do. So on the first one, on uh, it's Madiba's day uh, tomorrow, as you said, Sophie, and uh, uh, you know, something that we can learn from his legacy, especially being in this situation is, uh, what he had said, which I would like to quote, it always seems impossible until it is done. That's very important, I think, um, considering what we're confronting with now. Uh, it gives hope that we can defeat this pandemic. So I repeat again the quote, it always seems impossible until it's done. 
And as we said before, it's never too late. Anything can be turned around, but we have to push on with the courage and commitment that we have learned from Madiba. That's one. And the second one is, um, it, um, you know, something that I am reminded when I think about Madiba is his commitment to health. He was a very, very strong believer of health for all. Of course, it comes from his uh, belief uh, about equality. Uh, so that also is very important. I think when we build back our world, um, it should be with real commitment to health for all, to universal health coverage. So these are the two things I remember, which are very relevant to where we are now in our situation uh, from Mandela, from uh, uh, Madiba. Uh, and thank you so much, Sophie, for that uh, question. And the second, I'm not sure if um, Mark had, had listened, but it's um, in relation to Mark's uh, uh, statement. Mark, are you there? Yeah, Tedros, thank you very much indeed. And um, thank you for what you just said as well. I completely agree with what you um, what you just said. So um, I want to draw a contrast, if I may, between the global response for um, the 2008-9 financial crisis, where there was good coordination, a real stepping up um, by the better off countries through the G20, particularly in reinforcing the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank to help the poorer countries. There's, a, there's an unfortunate contrast between that and what we're seeing now. This is a much bigger crisis and every country is affected by it. Um, but unfortunately, we don't yet have a commensurate response from the wealthier countries in support of the poorer countries. Um, and our advice is that that's, that needs to change if the whole world does not want to look back in two or three years' time at multiple cascading crises and wonder why we didn't address them better because we can prevent the worst still. There's no need for the world to see multiple famines stalking the planet in the next six or nine months, but we won't prevent it unless we act differently. And I think it's timely to flag these issues ahead of the meeting of G20 finance ministers to encourage them to think about what more they can do in the way they acted in 2008-9. So thank you for your question and for the chance to make those points. Thank you very much. Oh, Mike. Uh, just, uh, just one thought on, on the great day tomorrow. I remember one uh, great quote from, from, from the great man who said, uh, do not judge me by my successes, but judge me by how many times I fell down and got back up again. And I think that's where we are now with, um, with uh, COVID-19 in so many places. Thank you. We all agree with that. Uh, I'll now um, hand the question to Stephanie from Reuters. Stephanie, could you unmute yourself and go ahead? Yes. Hello. Thank you for taking my question. Uh, it's regarding an update, please, on the uh, WHO advanced mission that's been in China for a week now, the two experts. Um, in quarantine, but negotiating um, uh, terms of access and a, and a plan for the wider mission. Do you expect them to return to Geneva anytime soon? And do you expect a wider WHO-led international mission to still get to China, say in July? Or, or if you have any other details on its composition as well, thank you. <clears throat> Uh, we're working towards uh, towards uh, all of those goals. Uh, our advanced team continues to engage with various uh, scientific and health groups and science and technology groups in, in China. And uh, we're also uh, reaching out uh, now uh, to, to experts uh, around the world, we're trying to build an advanced uh, a, a team that can be proposed to, to go and carry out uh, a later mission to implement uh, research studies and 
with, with colleagues in China. Um, it is going to take some time. We're obviously with the arrival and quarantine of individuals and working remotely is not the ideal way to work, but uh, we fully respect the, the risk management procedures that are in place. They're in there for, for everybody's safety and for everyone's health. Um, and uh, I think at this point, it's unrealistic given the timelines and given the logistics that we would expect a, a full mission to be going to the field in, in July, we could just in terms of the timing and in terms of pulling that team together. Uh, this is going to be a multinational team with many experts from a number of different countries with a number of different expertises, bringing that team together and then bringing that team into into China to work with Chinese colleagues uh, is, is going to take just from purely logistics and health risk management perspective um, uh, weeks, not days. So uh, I would not like to put a, a time of arrival for the team. But we are very pleased uh, with the collaboration on, on, on the ground. And we would obviously like to see a, a concrete plan of action with the remaining gaps and the remaining uh, areas that require further study and elaboration to be clearly elucidated uh, and, uh, and to be pursued by that team with our colleagues in China in due course. Thank you very much, Dr. Ryan. Um, the next person on the line is Costas from the Greek television station ERT. Costas, could you unmute yourself and go ahead, please? Can you hear me? Very clearly, please go ahead. Thank you for taking my question. You've been talking in recent weeks about how the coronavirus is transmitted through droplets and maybe the air. I would like to ask you if the transmission of the coronavirus can happen in the orofecal way and under what conditions and what is your opinion on the use of face shields and no masks that we see in restaurants and cafes? Thank you. I, I can I can start with that question, but I'm sorry, I'm going to go back to Stephanie's question very quickly because I was just thinking of how she asked the question where she said, if we are negotiating terms of access. And I just wanted to touch upon that to say that what's happening right now is a discussion between our WHO colleagues and our Chinese counterparts in terms of learning about what studies have been done, what studies need to be done in that collaborative fashion. So I, I just wanted to touch about uh, touch upon that. Uh, going to Costas's question about uh, routes of transmission or transmission, uh, thank you for bringing this question up. Um, we get a lot of questions about transmission and people focus on either droplets or they focus on aerosols or they focus on fecal oral or they focus on lots of different modes. But I think what we really need to be thinking about, and Mike, you may want to touch upon this, we need to think about not only how the virus transmits in terms of whether it's these respiratory droplets or aerosols or fecal oral, but when. Uh, it transmits in terms of the course of the infection from an individual and where transmission occurs. And that means the setting in which uh, the virus has an opportunity to pass from an infected person to another individual. And that we need to take into consideration the context, the intensity of that contact, and the duration of that contact. And I think we need to start thinking of it in that way because there are so many different ways in which we can minimize our risk and in many situations prevent transmission from moving from one infected individual to another. Um, with regards specifically to the fecal-oral, um, there are some studies that are looking at uh, sampling stool um, in infected patients, um, and many of those have found RNA fragments um, through PCR testing. Um, not viable virus um, or infectious virus, but uh, fragments of, of the uh, material of the, the genetic material of the virus itself. Um, and there are a lot of people that are looking at the possibility of a fecal-oral transmission. We haven't seen that demonstrated, um, but it is something that, it, that, is, that scientists are looking at. But again, just to reiterate that there, even though we find RNA uh, in stool samples, it doesn't mean that that is infectious, and it doesn't mean that, that someone can transmit between uh, the, the infected stool to another individual. Thank you very much, Dr. Van Kerkhoff. Uh, Dr. Ryan's got something to add. No, just again, back to the, the general message from Maria, which I, I think is important again. Uh, it is really important that we continue to pursue all of the knowledge regarding the various potential modes of transmission of this virus so that we can continue to adapt the various control measures. But we also 
always need to ask ourselves, what does this mean in our daily lives? What does this mean for our day-to-day -day ability to protect ourselves and protect our families? Uh, and I think within this, we need to continually reflect on the settings uh, that we put ourselves in, uh, the situations and the context. Uh, con danger is all about context. It's all situational. And being situationally aware, having situational awareness, where am I, what group am I in, is this a safe environment for me, for my children, for my family? Can I reduce the risk of this environment? So it's all about the setting. It is about the duration you spend in that setting, and it's about the intensity of the activities that you participate in in that setting. Um, and with you get into a particular setting, a very overcrowded situation uh, with uh, in, a, in an indoor environment, then effectively all bets are off because so many of the modes of transmission come into play. The, the aerosol route, the airborne route, the fomite or contamination route. So, so the more in close you are to other people, the more you are inside, the more the activity is intense or involves very close social contact, the more that multiple modes of transmission uh, come into play. So in that sense, it is about you understanding your risk. It is about you managing that risk uh, and being aware of the situation that you find yourself in personally and reducing that risk for you, for your family, for your children, for your for your community. Um, it is important, as I've said previously, that governments communicate those risks uh, very, very carefully. And it is also important that uh, providers, authorities, and others ensure that those environments are as safe as possible and that the risks are also managed. And we don't know what the perfect combination is of, of interventions. But what we do know is if individuals and communities are very aware of those risks, very aware of the virus transmission in the area. If the authorities are taking action to ensure that uh, people are safe, safe in schools, safe in restaurants, safe in buildings, um, and if all of that comes together uh, in an organized and, and understandable way for communities, in the main, those countries, those areas control this virus. Uh, so it's not one thing, it's not just about the, the the issue of masks, or it's not just about the issue of hand washing, it's not just about the issue of lockdowns or stay-at-home orders or any, it is a combination of measures in which the community, in partnership with each other and in partnership with the authorities, come to a sustainable way of controlling and suppressing the transmission of the virus and living with the virus in a way that normal human activity can resume in a successful way. Uh, and uh, I think it's, it's very important then that science continues to further understand the dynamics of human transmission to see if any adjustments need to be made to those measures. Thank you very much, Dr. Ryan. Uh, so we now have a question from Antonio from the Spanish news agency, EFE. Antonio, please go ahead, unmute yourself and please go ahead. Antonio, are you there? I think we uh, have, yes. oh, you're there. Okay, please go ahead. Sorry. Okay, I will make my question in, in Spanish. Um, me ha llamado la atención eh, en el discurso del señor Louco que, que ha mencionado que hay 13 países en riesgo de conflicto eh, hasta 2022 si no se toman medidas. Me gustaría saber ¿Cuáles son esos 13 países y qué tipo de conflictos eh, afrontan? ¿Conflictos por, por los recursos? Eh, si, si tiene eh, algo más de información, porque me ha llamado la atención que sea un número tan concreto. So that was a question for Mr. Lowcock. Uh, Mr. Lowcock, did you get that? The question was, there are 13 yeah, countries. Oh, you got it all. Okay, over to you. Yeah, I got it. Thank you so much. Yeah. Well, um, what we will do is we will send you, um, there's quite a lot of detail about this. So we'll send you some detail um, in paper uh, uh, following on. But the, the basic point to understand is that these huge economic and social pressures that people are facing and the decline in availability of basic services, health services um, and so on, add to the fragility and the stresses and the drivers of conflict. 
what we've seen, unfortunately, really over the last um, 10 years on the planet is lots of pressures accumulating in different parts of the world, obviously in the Middle East, across the Sahel, in other parts of Africa, increasingly um, in other parts of the world as well, which are unleashing very hard to control forces, opening up the space for conflict, and in some case, uh, cases, opening up the space for extremists to operate. Conflicts all have causes, they have origins, and often those origins are um, in part economic or resource-based. What we know about conflict also is that when they start, they're very hard to stop, and they have consequences way beyond the places where they start. And, you know, the, one of the big messages we're trying to convey through this cost of inaction report that we released alongside the update of the humanitarian response plan for COVID-19 is we are seeing all those drivers build up and pile up. And we know that that has consequences. Thank you. Um, maybe I could supplement, Mark, because our, our teams work together every day. When we look at, at countries in, in humanitarian context and those countries deeply fragile and vulnerable through uh, the processes that Mark uh, refers to, um, historically over the last number of years, 70% of the high impact epidemics around the world occur in those settings. And that's where we end up, end up operating uh, a lot of the time like we have teams in Congo today, for teams in the field for one and a half years, be it for, for in all, all over the world. So in that sense, the health security of the world is threatened by the fact that there are not strong surveillance and response systems in place in these fragile settings. That's a threat to the people in those areas, and that's a threat to the world. So as, as the cost of doing nothing and the cost of non-intervention is not just in the areas. It is a global consequence of inaction. Uh, and we really need to look at that. Secondly, when we look at our collective goals uh, in terms of reaching the sustainable development goals and bringing better health and social justice to the world, the fact is that, uh, that uh, the highest rates of maternal and child mortality are occurring in these same countries. We will not reach our goals on childhood mortality, on, on maternal mortality. We will not reach our goals on immunization for the world unless we learn to do better in supporting these countries in conflict, in deep fragility. And so therefore it is, there is a massive cost of inaction, both on COVID but on so many other things in these countries. So we stand with Mark and the Interagency Standing Committee and our, our UN partners in really highlighting that the issues arising, long-term uh, issues arising in, in, in conflict are not only impacting the people in those areas but have a major implication for the rest of the planet. And it is in our enlightened self-interest to address this. This is not just the right thing to do, it is the smart thing to do. Thank you very much, Mr. Lokok and Dr. Ryan. We now have Bayram from Andalou, the Turkish agency. Bayram, please unmute yourself and go ahead. Uh, thank you so much for taking my question. Um, we keep on hearing uh, different reports about uh, whether or not people can be re reinfected with COVID-19 after getting the virus and then being cured. What is uh, the WHO's current uh, assess assessment of this? Thank you so much. Thank you for the question. Um, Yes, this is, this is an important question that we've been asked um, quite a lot lately um, in terms of if someone can be reinfected with uh, COVID-19. So what we understand, um, this, is a, this is an area of active research um, by scientists all over the world, clinicians all over the world. Uh, what we understand from people who are infected with the SARS-CoV-2 virus, the virus that causes COVID-19, is that they will develop an immune response. They will develop antibodies, neutralizing antibodies, and an immune response um, that will provide some protection against reinfection. Um, what we don't know right now is how strong that protection is and for how long that protection will last. And we need answers to those questions to be able to determine if someone can be reinfected after that immunity wears off. Um, so this is an area of active, active research um, for the specific SARS-CoV-2 virus. Um, we do have some answers for other coronaviruses, the MERS coronavirus and the SARS-CoV-1 SARS 
uh, coronavirus, uh, which emerged in 2003, um, indicating that people have an immunity that lasts over 12 months or so, and maybe even longer. And we have some results from the human coronaviruses, the common cold coronaviruses that circulate the globe regularly, and your protection lasts a lot shorter than that. So uh, we don't have a complete answer, um, but it is an area of active research, and I, I should say an active collaborative research all over the world. Thank you very much, Dr. Van Kerkhoff and Dr. Ryan. Uh, now we have a question from Bianco from Globo in Brazil. Bianca, please go ahead. Uh, unmute yourself and please go ahead. Hi, Margaret. Can you hear me? Very well, Bianca. Please go ahead. Many thanks for your attention, for taking my question. Um, so, um, journalist from Global News and Global TV, Brazil. I, I know that Brazil is between the 63 countries that um, Mark Lowcock mentioned, where people uh, need humanitarian assistance. So I would like to hear from Mark, how concerned are you, Mark, with the situation there in Brazil? And from Dr. Tedros or Dr. Ryan, if they can give us an updated general view of the challenge Brazil is facing now with more than 2 million cases. Thanks a lot. Okay. Uh, this one's for Mr. Lowcock. So we'll go to Mr. Lowcock first, and then we've got some things to say in the room too. Well, thank you very much. Um, the main activity of the humanitarian agencies, which I coordinate in Brazil, relates to support for Brazil in the way they are helping people who've left Venezuela. Um, and Brazil, like Colombia, Peru, Ecuador, a range of other countries, um, is taking on a large burden of supporting, helping support millions of Venezuelans who, for reasons everyone's familiar with, have in recent years left their country. Um, now, um, it's probably important for me also to say that we recognize that Brazil itself has a very substantial problem. And I know that Tedros and Mike will talk about WHO's perspective on that and the support and so on. But what the humanitarian agencies do is focus their effort on the very poorest countries. So Brazil, um, country obviously which has developed a lot over recent decades, has typically not needed assistance from humanitarian agencies in the way, say, some African countries or some countries caught up in conflict um, have done. So we do not at the, at the moment, and we hope we never need to um, have a strong engagement of the humanitarian agencies um, uh, in dealing with the crisis in Brazil, because Brazil has built up a lot of capability of its own through the process of um, development. So I think that's probably what I can say on this topic, but I know that um, Tedros and Mike will have other things to add. Yeah, I can make some uh, some general points. Uh, again, the, the number of uh, daily cases has stabilized uh, between uh, between 40 and, and, and about 45,000. So we, we're not seeing uh, the the daily increases that we've seen uh, possibly uh, through the month of uh, April and May we saw very uh, high rate of increase uh, and coming then into to mid-June and into July we see that plateau occurring but what's not happening yet is that that disease has not turned and is not heading down the mountain so from that perspective the numbers have stabilized, but what they haven't done is started to uh, fall in a systematic day-by-day -day way. So Brazil is still in the middle of this, uh, still very much in the middle of this fight. The last 24 hours, I think over 45,000 cases with 1,322 deaths. Overall, about 11% of cases, one in more than one in 10 cases in Brazil is a healthcare worker, which is in itself a tra tragedy, and Dr. Tedros referred to that similar uh, uh, situation in, in 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 Spain. So our health workers are paying uh, the heaviest price. Uh, the the health system, the the reproductive number overall uh, in in April 
in May the reproductive number was quite high. It was over 1.5 and in many cases over 2. In other words, each case was generating two or more other cases. That in general across all of the regions has stabilized now and is somewhere between 0.5 and 1.5 across the different states. So the, the virus is not, uh, in a sense, doubling itself in the community as quickly as it was before. So the rise in Brazil is no longer exponential. It has plateaued, uh, but the cases and deaths continue to occur. And there is absolutely no guarantee that that will go down by itself. Um, we've seen this in other countries. There is a plateau. There is an opportunity here now for Brazil to push the disease down, to suppress the transmission of the virus, to take control. Up to now, in many countries, including Brazil, the virus is being in charge. The virus sets the rules. We need to set the rules for the virus. Uh, and there is an opportunity, once those numbers are stabilized, to drive transmission downwards. And I think that opportunity exists now for Brazil to do that. But it is going to take a very sustained, concerted action in order for that to occur. And we wish the authorities in Brazil, we wish the frontline health workers every success in doing that. And WHO and PAHO will be with them every step of the way in doing that. Thank you very much. Uh, the next question comes from Dina Abi Saab, who represents, who writes for a number of outlets in the Gulf states. Dina, please go ahead with your question. Dina, can you unmute yourself, please, and ask your question? We can't hear you. Okay, uh, Dina, we'll come back to you and we'll go to our next person. The next uh, reporter is Catherine from, Catherine from uh, France Saint-Catherine. Please go ahead, uh, Catherine. Yes, uh, thank you, Margaret, for taking uh, my question. In fact, um, this is a very uh, precise question uh, regarding um, some uh, research made apparently in Israel regarding um, um, medicine a powder that could block um, some of um, the infection but through the nose. Um, it is apparently um, a powder based on intranasal product. It's an intranasal product that could block the droplets to uh, enter uh, through the nose. So. Do you think that it is an uh, interesting uh, research? Um, is it efficient? Um, is it uh, part of the different treatments that you are looking into? Thank you. I, I think we need, uh, when I'm not personally aware of such a product in Israel, um, and we'd certainly need uh, a lot more information before we could make any comment. But what uh, have been developed in the past, and there are a number of uh, the the nasal pathway, and many of us uh, use nasal products in the winter when people have colds or flus, and we can inhale certain products to relieve symptoms. So there's a difference here between symptom relief um, and treatment of a case or prevention of a case. And there are lots of products out there that are intranasal that allow people to achieve relief when they have colds and flus. And uh, I'm sure many people are using them uh, uh, during the era of COVID. Um, there are um, various other uh, therapeutic products that can be delivered through the intranasal route. And I know some companies, for example, I know that the company Gilead is, is currently trying to develop an intranasal or an inhaled version of its, uh, of its drug. Uh, and I know also on the vaccine development front that there are uh, um, um, vaccines currently being uh, on, under development that may also be delivered through the nasal route. So there are uh, potentially promising um, intranasal solutions. But in a sense, we have to decide if drugs or vaccines are best delivered by oral, by injection, or by inhalation or by intranasal route. Uh, but certainly I'm not aware of any particular powder or any particular medicine uh, from Israel, and uh, we would need more information before making a specific comment on that. Maria, I don't know if you have any. Thank you very much, Dr. Ryan. We now have Michael from CNN. Michael, please unmute yourself and go ahead. Uh, good morning from British Columbia. Can you hear me? 
Very well. Uh, welcome to Geneva. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for taking my uh, question. Uh, question for uh, Mark, if I can. And Mark, um, I have to salute the work of Archer and your colleagues. I've watched them work up closely as a UN worker and as a journalist. Uh, so you have some of the best in, in emergencies. My question is the following, and I think it overlaps uh, with an earlier one a bit. But it seems to a lot of us tracking this that conflicts are not only lasting longer, they are more lethal. And um, I know today, for example, is the sixth anniversary of the downing of MH17 in eastern Ukraine. And that conflict has lasted six years, killed more than 14,000 displaced million, millions. But why is that um, danger factor, that lethal factor, much, much bigger these days than before? Thank you very much. Uh, Mr. Lecoq, please go ahead. Yes. Yeah, thank you very much. So you're right in terms of what's happened. I mean, you, you use the example of um, Eastern Ukraine. Um, the conflict um, in Syria is nearly 10 years old now, longer than the First and Second World Wars combined. The Yemen conflict is uh, more than five years old. Um, the um, uh, internal conflicts in and around the Lake Chad Basin have been going on for many years. Um, wh why um, is this happening? Well, it's, I think it's largely a commentary on the um, state of geopolitics, frankly, that um, the world was much better, more capable um, 10, 15 years ago in dealing with um, these kind of problems, both preventing them and then when they did occur, resolving them than it is in the current era. We see that particularly um, also in the Libya crisis, where what we've got, as we have with some of the others I've referred to, is not just an issue inside the country. We have multiple external partners taking sides and engaging themselves. And um, this is the biggest driver of the huge increase we've seen in humanitarian suffering. Most humanitarian suffering these days arises not from earthquakes or typhoons or floods, natural events. It arises from human actions. Um, and the world needs to get better at resolving these um, problems. Now, of course, as I said earlier, there are underlying drivers, um, political, economic, environmental. And one of the things that we're also seeing is more um, conflict-related problems, which are driven in an underlying way or made worse in an underlying way by resource pressures. Now, the only way out of this set of challenges is firstly to contain the immediate problem. That's where humanitarian assistance comes in. And the world has a very good humanitarian system, which reaches more than 100 million people a year and certainly saves millions of lives a year and prevents some conflicts spreading even further and the global public bads being exported even further. But beyond that, what the world needs to get better at, again, is peacemaking and peace building and crucially development. It's evident that it's much less common these days than it used to be in previous human history for there to be conflicts affecting the better off countries. So the path out of this um, little period we're in, unhappily globally at the moment, is very fundament fundamentally related to development and especially the achievement of the sustainable development goals. In the meantime, the humanitarian agencies need to be supported to relieve the suffering of those people who, through no fault of their own, are caught up in crises and avoid them spreading further. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mr. Lokok. Do we have anyone in the room who wants to add? So our, our next question comes from Peter from European News Agency. Uh, Peter, can you unmute yourself and go ahead? Okay. Uh, can you hear me now? Hear you very well, Peter. Please go ahead. Um, my question is addressed more in general because several stu uh, studies have already indicated that antibodies uh, become inactive. There are studies in, in Belgium and in uh, Spain that have already indicated that 
the antibodies leave the bloodstream within a matter of months. So that also would imply that uh, the herd immunity and the T cell immunity is unlikely to work. That's a bit scary. So why shouldn't we not address our uh, narrative a bit more towards informing public that this pandemic is going to take us at least two to three years down the road? And what would the WHO could do in order to bridge this period from now until there is a vaccine, which is unlikely going to be there before 2023. Thank you. So thank you for the question. I'll, I'll start, uh, and I'm, I'm sure uh, others would like to add here. So you, you have a number of questions in your, in your question that you posed to us in, in your statement here. Um, we, there are a number of studies right now that are looking at the antibody response whether this is a, a neutralizing antibody or whether it's a T cell response. That's not the same type of antibody response. The data that we have is very preliminary. Um, we mentioned the other day uh, that there's three studies uh, that are available. Um, there are many studies in preprint, which means they have not gone through peer review publication. And there are hundreds, literally hundreds of other studies that are underway that are looking at the antibody response, whether it's neutralizing antibodies or T cell response, a cellular response, um, among different individuals. People who have had mild infection, people who have had severe disease, people who have developed no disease at all, or these asymptomatic cases, and what that actually means. We do have, as you say, we do have some preliminary data that suggests that the neutralizing response may not last for a long period of time. But we do need to be careful about drawing too many conclusions from some preliminary information. Um, what we really need is to do these longitudinal studies where we follow the same individuals over time and we actually measure the neutralizing antibody response and ideally a T cell response, which is actually a much more difficult study to conduct and can only be conducted in a, in a few countries in the world right now. And we're supporting countries to be able to do these types of studies follow these individuals over time and collect samples over many, many months and actually look at what that, that protection looks like. But as you say, um, there are things that we need to do right now um, to be able to, first of all, prevent those infections. And we have outlined, uh, since, since the beginning of this pandemic, a number of different ways in which people as individuals can prevent themselves from getting infected, prevent themselves from infecting others, you know, who may be of a more vulnerable uh, population and develop severe disease, what governments can do to outline this all of government, all of society comprehensive approach. And these are steps, these are tools that we have right now. We must use these tools right now while there is this development, uh, accelerated development of therapeutics and safe and effective vaccines, which will definitely take some time. Um, but what, we're, what I want to just caution is to draw too many firm conclusions from preliminary results. I think we do need to prepare ourselves, as you say, with the information that we have and ensure that we have a comprehensive system in place to find cases, test cases, isolate cases, carry out contact tracing, ensure that contacts are quarantined, make sure that we have appropriate and adequate care facilities for individuals who need care for COVID and for other diseases so that we empower our community so that everyone knows what they can do to prevent themselves from getting infected, focusing on public health measures with the hand hygiene, the physical distancing, wearing a mask where appropriate. All of these measures need to be put in place now. Thank you very much, Dr. Van Kierkhoff. So we're coming up to the hour. We've got a lot of questions and I apologize for all those who didn't, to all those who didn't get their question asked, but I think we'll have to make this the last question. Uh, and it goes to Musa from the Geneva Press Corps. Musa, please unmute yourself and go ahead. Uh, oui, est-ce que vous m'entendez comme ça? Très bien, merci. C'est bon? Oui, merci. Alors, ma question concernant les pays en développement, surtout en Afrique, Si les pays 20, le G20, décident de ne pas payer ou payer beaucoup moins de ce qui est demandé, alors quelle sera la situation dans ces pays, les pays pauvres, les pays en développement et surtout en Afrique au niveau économique, euh, social et aussi sanitaire Merci. I think that's a question for Mr. Lecoq. Well, thank you very much indeed. Um, so let me 
start by saying a few things about the set of problems and challenges that um, countries in the continent face as a result of the COVID pandemic. The first is economic. They're affected by the global economic contraction and some of the measures around um, lockdown and so on have affected them as well. Um, so there are large numbers of people now in the continent for whom it's harder to make a living than it was before the crisis. Secondly, they're affected by what we observe as enormous pressures on the health system. Uh, immunization rates, the, probably the best investment to save a life is to vaccinate a child against a killer disease. Immunization um, is under pressure, is not being sustained in lots of countries. Malaria prevention control is under pressure. It's harder to sustain basic services for pregnant women and for new newborn children. Um, HIV prevention treatment is, is getting harder to um, sustain as well. Um, in addition, we're seeing a, um, a plague of gender-based violence, a global plague actually, not just in developing countries, but in other places. But women and girls in uh, poorer countries are suffering from that as, um, as they are in other places. Now, um, what we want to see is support to um, African countries who don't have the same resource base as some other countries um, elsewhere around the world. We want, we want to see more support for them as an act of human empathy and generosity, but also in the interest of the wealthier countries. And we have seen um, some generous funding for our humanitarian response plan for COVID-19. As I said earlier, we've raised $1.7 billion so far, um, but we need to raise a lot more. Um, and the basic problem we have at the moment on the humanitarian side is needs are growing very dramatically. I think there'll be a need for $40 billion worth of assistance uh, to protect 250 million people from humanitarian crisis this year. The needs are growing very dramatically. And although the funding is growing too, the funding is growing very slowly. So the gap between the need and the funding is growing. But we're also seeing another compounding problem which is that more countries are coming under economic stress and are being dragged down into the category of that countries, which has humanitarian caseloads and people who can't survive without help. And that's where I really think the G20 need to step up to um, resource the international financial institutions, the IMF and the World Bank and other institutions better to help avoid a situation where more and more countries come into these acute levels of crisis and the rules get changed on the basis of which the international financial institutions support those countries. So the money moves faster, more efficiently, but crucially, most of all, to the countries with the biggest problem. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mr. Lecoq. Uh, uh, Dr. Ryan's got something to add. Now, just to support what, what, what Mark has said, and, and, and in, in the particular context of COVID-19, many countries uh, are really taking a huge impact on the humanitarian front, on the development front, on the health systems front. And this causing huge strain on overseas aid, ODA, and, and donors who would traditionally be supporting development and health systems are strained by that because uh, governments are also trying to take care of crisis at home. So uh, equally humanitarian donors in the same situation. <clears throat> and I think um, while trying to sustain overseas development assistance and aid and humanitarian intervention, I think we also need to accept that supporting countries in, for COVID-19 in humanitarian settings or in fragility, or supporting uh, <clears throat> a humanitarian response in general in those settings, it's not just a humanitarian issue. It's not just an interrupted development issue. It, it, it is now globally about continued economic prosperity on this planet, because unless and until COVID-19 is controlled everywhere. It is a risk everywhere. And it will continue to threaten the world economically. It will continue to threaten the world politically until we get rid of this virus or bring it under sustained control. Therefore, we cannot ignore the fact that over 2 billion people live in contexts of poverty, uh, exclusion, <clears throat> um, fragility, and extreme vulnerability. Uh, it is not uh, a purely a development or humanitarian issue, and neither is it purely an economic issue. 
it is an issue of global security. It is about global health security, but ultimately, if not managed, and if these contexts are not stabilized and managed, they themselves will worsen conflict and will drive further instability. And I think it's time, and Mark has laid this out very, very clearly in the documents that, that he is and his teams have produced. Uh, this is uh, much more than a development and humanitarian issue, and the world needs to wake up to that reality if we want to effectively deal with COVID-19 going forward. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Ryan. Okay, I will now close proceedings, but Dr. Dr. Tedros has something to say. I will first apologize for some of the problems with the sound and with the live streaming on social media, but we'll make sure that we get, the, we will post it all on the web and we'll send you the links and we'll also provide the transcript. Now I'll hand over to Dr. Dr. Tedros to close proceedings. Thank you. Thank you, Margaret. At the beginning of today's briefing, uh, I quote the remarks made yesterday by the Spanish nurse Aroa Lopez. One of the other speakers at yesterday's memorial was Fernando Hernandez Caleja, who lost his brother to COVID-19. I want to finish by quoting him. This is what he said. More than kindness, more than love, Compassion is the emotion that most makes us human. Compassion allows us to understand the pain of others, their thwarted aspirations, their sadness. That's why I'm asking today for your compassion. I want to echo Fernando's call to the whole world. More than anything, we're asking for your compassion. This pandemic can only be defeated when we unite and through compassion. Thank you and have a nice weekend. And thanks, Mark, also for joining us today. Thank you and all those online for joining. Thank you so much. Have a nice weekend.